So you can turn to the lesson that you have in front of you. So we're continuing our discussion of the power of positive confession, which is based on the book by the same name by Apostle Frederick Casey Price, as you very well know. Now, as I have pointed out before, Apostle Price's book is somewhat autobiographical in that it describes how he took the word and applied that word to his life. And the book was written to show us how we can do the very same thing and see our lives transformed for the better. Apostle Price and his experience shows us how God's system works and we, if we understand that system and we work with and within that system. Again, God's system is best described by Dr. Price as follows. God has designed his system to work by his word. That is what the Bible is for. God has given us his word so that we would know his word, so that we would believe his word, so that we would say, that is, confess his word, so that he would in turn confirm his word in our lives. This is the way God's system works. Now, as I've said before, these are the steps that Apostle Price followed and his dedication and commitment to the process led to a remarkable transformation in his life. I literally saw that transformation take place in front of me, in front of my eyes. This obedience to the word has enabled him to do what Ellen Nate cited a little bit earlier, what uh, Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, to have life and to have it more abundantly. Now, Apostle Price has always said that he wants all of us, all of God's children, to achieve and live that victorious overcoming life that he has been able to do. And he shows us by his example how we can do this. Now, I'm going to give a little reflection this morning on Apostle Price again and our late President Herbert Walker Bush, who was laid to rest this week. Because there are some real comparisons between the characters of these two great men. So I'm led to pause and reflect again this morning on Apostle Price's life and his example. And this was prompted by the events this past week where the nation celebrated the life of George Herbert Walker Bush, our 41st president. It's because these two men share some remarkable traits admirable traits. Both were dedicated to serving others and both avoided self-aggrandizement and self-praise. Both achieved remarkable heights but never saw those achievements as something that should bring lofty praise to them. For both men, it has never been a case of what I did or how great I was or how great the many things I accomplished. And we all know that the late President Bush had a remarkable career of public service. He began with military service. He served as an aviator with the Navy during the Second World War. He went on to serve as a congressman from his home district in Texas. He became the ambassador to China. He served as our UN ambassador, the ambassador to the United Nations. 
He was the director of the CIA. He was chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was vice president of our nation for eight years and then became president. During his term in office, a number of historic actions took place on the world stage. And it really set the world stage to being what it is today, or pretty much what it used to be before today. And his actions led to the liberation of Kuwait. You remember when Kuwait was invaded by Iraq? Iraq decided they were going to annex the, the country of Kuwait. And they just marched in and took over the country. It's a much smaller country. And uh, George Bush organized 29 countries and uh, prosecuted, prosecuted the Iraq war, drove the Iraqis out, and restored Kuwait to its independence as an independent and sovereign nation. Also during his term of office, we saw the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall, the wall that divided East Germany from West Germany. And the unification of East and West Germany, which is really a difficult thing to achieve because many of the European nations, like France and England, did not want to see a unified Germany that would become strong again. Because remember, who led us into World War I? Germany. World War II. They didn't want to see a strong, united Germany again because they, they felt that they had witnessed firsthand enough of the impact of a strong Germany in Europe. But nonetheless, uh, under the leadership of, of George Bush, the countries were united. And as you can see, the rest was history. He oversaw the breakup of the Soviet Union and the liberation of at least 15 countries that had been part of that Soviet bloc going back to becoming independent nations. These are great accomplishments. If he had done nothing else, any one of those would have made his presidency a great presidency. But within our own country, we saw a number of key achievements under President Bush, including the landmark Clean Air Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I can't tell you how important the Americans with Disabilities Act is. Before this act, people in wheelchairs, people who were quadriplegic, people who had difficulty walking, with walkers and, 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 uh, and uh, canes and so forth, they had to fend for themselves. You would get to a building and there was no access for them, no special access for them. There was no push button that would open the doors for them. There was nothing special for them. They had to proceed as if they were completely whole like everyone else. This act created everything that you see around you. You know those dents in the sidewalk? That's the result of this act. The, the access ramps in buildings, every new building has to have an access ramp, and the old buildings have to retrofit themselves a public building so that people can have access by wheelchair. This all came out of this act. This is one of the most significant things to take place. And in 1991, we had the Civil Rights Act of that year, and his efforts to clean the air led to a reduction of acid rain in our air by 88%, which was remarkable. But the thing that I want you to see is that you could hardly ever get President Bush to talk about these achievements or even take credit for them. 
Now, this is very much the same attitude we find in Apostle Price, and this is why I'm drawing those comparisons today. Dr. Price is an obvious leader and pioneer teacher in the body of Christ who paved the way for so many other pastors and teachers who followed. Dr. Price established one of the largest ministries in the nation, Crenshaw Christian Center, built one of the first mega church facilities that we know as the Faith Dome, which seats over 10,000 people. He founded the Fellowship of International Word of Faith Ministries, which had hundreds of church members from all over the world. And he became the first black pastor, first black minister, to have a national television program, which aired from coast to coast. And this program just celebrated its 40th year of being on the air. Apostle Price assisted hundreds of ministries around the world. His charitable giving is also seen around the world, schools, orphanages, churches, and so forth. A major impact on religious teaching, which I think is so significant, that was made by Apostle Price was his emphasis on faith and teaching faith and how faith works. Now, while he did not start the teaching of faith in the nation, he was the one who popularized this teaching with his teaching across the nation and with his national televised program, Ever Increasing Faith. We can find churches today across the nation and indeed in parts of the world that have patterned themselves after Crenshaw Christian Center. When you see a church that has the name Center in its name, you know that that church is a direct uh, uh, descendant from Apostle Price's church. Word of Faith Christian Center, Spirit of Faith Christian Center, and so forth. You'll see churches all across the nation. Yet, Apostle Price resists being called a leader, and he doesn't grab the mantle of forerunner and pioneer that so many of us see him to be. I've seen this throughout his life. And while many thought he should enter politics, or at least become a major player in politics in terms of supporting candidates uh, and so on. He resisted this, and he would have had a great impact because of his huge following nationwide. But he would often say that politics was not his assignment. His assignment was to teach the word, and more specifically, the word of faith. And thank God for that, because that's why most of us are sitting here uh, this morning. Now, a few years ago, I was in Los Angeles, and the reason I'm telling you these things is that you would have no way of knowing these things uh, uh, because they have not been published in any publication that I know of. And uh, maybe we're going to put together a book, or have a book put together on uh, Apostle Price. I know there's one book that's been written. I mean, maybe I'll write one. <laughs> anyway, a few years ago, I was in Los Angeles when Bishop T.D. Jakes had come to meet the apostle at the Faith Dome to film an interview with him. The film, the interview was part of a promotional uh, T.D. Jakes leadership conference uh, that was going to be held later that year in 2014 in Orlando, Florida. And he had invited Apostle Price to be one of the keynote speakers. T.D. Jakes conducted the interview. It was filmed right there. I was watching on or looking on. And the subject of Apostle's leadership role in the body of Christ came up. And Apostle's reaction was that, and he's responding to T.D. Jakes, he says, well, I already never have seen myself as a leader. But Bishop Jakes insisted and reminded the Apostle that he was one of the true generals in the church, that he was very much a pioneering leader 
and teacher and that his role should be forever memorialized for future generations in the church to know and appreciate. I think we would all agree with Bishop Brakes, Bishop uh, Jakes on that. Now, I went to that 2014 leadership conference in Florida and I remember, and this was so moving, the apostle would come out of his room to go to a meeting on the floor and it was a massive meeting. He could hardly move for being surrounded and mobbed by throngs of pastors from all over the world who revered him so much. And this was especially true by the pastors from Africa. He is so well known and so beloved in Africa that, uh, that they just wanted to reach out and touch him. But notwithstanding this acclaim, I know that Apostle Price's great desire, as I stated before, is to help us all, all of God's children, achieve and live the victorious overcoming life that he had been able to, to, to do by being obedient to the word of God. His desire above all else, none of this acclaim, is to help us know and live the word of God. Now, in, res in response to the question, this is the question to Apostle Price, how do you see yourself and your mission in life? Apostle would often turn to the poetic lyric from the song, If I Can Help Somebody, whose first lyric, and I know most of us know this song, If I Can Help Somebody As I Travel Along, Some It Changes As I Pass Along, My Living Will Not Be In Vain. If I Could Help Somebody As I Go Through Life, My Living Would Not Be In Vain. Now this song was written in 1945 by the black pianist, songwriter, and lyricist Irene Basil and Rosal Thompson. Those last two names were the names she was married twice, uh, and uh, those are the names that she took of her husband. So that's it's Irene Basil. The song was made famous through the use, its use by Martin Luther King. It's a favorite. He would cite this often. And in song, it was sung by singers like Mahalia Jackson. And the lyrics from If I Can Help Somebody sum up in, in a clear, if simplistic form, the sentiments of Apostle Price. And the lyrics go like this, and I, I know many of you know the lyrics. If I can help somebody as I travel along, if I can help somebody with a word or song, if I can help somebody from doing wrong, no, my living shall not be in vain. <coughs> now this expression was a sentiment of both President Bush and Apostle Price. President Bush carried out his ideal through a lifetime of public service. Apostle Price is carrying out his sentiment through a determined effort to teach people the word of God and to show people the power of faith to transform their lives. Now for Apostle, teaching the word and combating ignorance of God's word are among, it, it, the ignorance of God's word among his people are the first and preeminent step. This primary goal in his teaching is derived from what God tells us clearly in Hosea 4.6, where he says, and you know this by heart because we cite it so often, <coughs> my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is a lack of knowledge of his word. Now, this vast lack of knowledge of God's word is why Apostle Price stresses teaching over preaching. He has nothing against preaching, especially if the preaching is informative. He says that preaching has been a good source 
of inspiration, and we need inspiration, and we need to be inspired. But based on Hosea 4, 6, he sees a greater need is for information, <coughs> information to go forth from the pulpit. So in our teachings here at Crenshaw Christian Center in New York, we are guided by Apostle Price, who sets learning and understanding the word as the most urgent need for both new and seasoned believers. That's learning and understanding the word of God, the most important thing that you as a Christian believer need to do. As the apostle says, when you learn the word and see how applying the word can change your life, you will become inspired from that. So following Apostle Price's emphasis on teaching, we will go back to our discussion of the power of positive confession. Now, I, I mentioned these things about Apostle Price because I want you to understand that in spite of all of his achievements, none of which he <coughs> said he wanted, you never heard him saying, I want to be a megachurch pastor. You never said, you heard him say, I want to have a <coughs> 30,000 member church. What he would say is he wanted to bring as many people to Christ as he could. He wanted people to know God's word, <coughs> believe God's word. You can see I'm fighting symptoms, but the devil is a liar. <laughs> believe his word, confess his word, so that God could comply, could, could, could confirm that word in the believer's life. Now, in the message last week, I discussed the fact that Satan is our adversary and Jesus is our advocate. Satan seeks to destroy you by keeping you ignorant of God's word, robbing you of your faith in the word that you hear, and by taking your negative confessions and using them against you. <coughs> now, as our advocate and high priest of our confession, Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He pleads his precious blood over us and any adverse situation and takes our positive confession before the Father in his role as high priest of our confession. You know, in our uh, offering confession of faith, we mention that Jesus is our high priest and he takes our offering and presents them to the Father. Well, that's what he does with our confessions. He takes your confessions, our confessions, that are in line with the word of God, our positive confession, and he presents them to the Father, especially if there's a need to rebuff, defeat, or react to something that Satan is attempting to do in your life. Now, <clears throat> Satan is opposite to God, but he is certainly not God's equal. The role of Satan as adversary and Jesus as advocate and high priest were discussed with the scriptural references from the Bible that set out these functions for us to know and understand. And you can find this discussion in last week's message and in really in the message the week before that that contained the various scriptures cited, so I'm not going to do that again this morning. <coughs> this look at Satan as our opposing party to God and Jesus led some of you to this question because I was asked this. If Satan is opposite of God, does this mean that he is equal to God? You know, like two boxers in the ring who are fairly equal, they're adversaries and so forth. So the answer to this, I think most of you know this, is no. Now, this is one of those questions that's asked. I'm, I'm asked questions after lessons by different people, sometimes by text message, sometimes by email, and sometimes one-on-one. -on -one. 
But this is one that needs to be addressed so that everybody can be clear on this point. And it uh, necessitates taking a little bit of digression from the message to respond to that. Now, in his work to destroy the believer, Satan is opposing God and Jesus Christ. But Satan is by no means their equal. Now, in discussing Satan and God, we are never talking about equals. Never talking about equals. Consider what I call the big three divine characteristics of God, and you will see right away that there's no question of equality between them. The big three divine characteristics, you know them. They are the omnis, the omnipotent, the omnipresence, and the omniscience. God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And he is omnipresent, meaning everywhere present, present everywhere, all the time. Satan does not have, or I'm sorry, Satan does have great power that is more than any man and more than most angels. But, pow- but this power does not come anywhere close to the awesome power of God. <coughs> Satan, <laughs> Satan is not all-powerful. He is not omnipotent. Satan has a strong intellect and he knows lots of things from experience, but he is not he is by no means all-knowing or omniscient as God is. And certain, Satan certainly is not everywhere, everywhere present or omnipresent as God is. As a being, Satan is an individual personality which says that he can only be in one place at one time. And you see this in Job. I'm just going to cite this one scripture. In Job chapter 1 verse 7, there'd been a gathering around Father God and Satan came moseying up along with the other good people and uh, so in Job 1 7 says this and the Lord said to Satan where do you come from so Satan answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it if Satan was everywhere present all the time as God he would not need to go back and forth on the earth and walk here for I mean back and forth on the earth because he would be everywhere all the time as God is so he's not everywhere Satan does have the reason he can accomplish as much as he does is that he does have demons at his beck and call and they can do his be his bidding when needed when we say that that Satan is attacking you we're not saying that he's literally in front of you beating you with a bat. He's attacking you by feeding thoughts and suggestions and ideas into your mind. The thoughts and suggestions and ideas that support your fears, your worry, your lack of belief, or it supports your negative view of what's happening in your life. It supports your preoccupation with what you see and not what is reality. In other words, you see yourself having only $200 in the bank when you really need $600 to pay the rent. Satan takes that because this is, this is in your mind. This is what you're worrying about. And he feeds on those worries. And this is how he is able to help defeat you in a given situation. Satan and his, deem, uh, his uh, legion of uh, demons... Now, as I said last week, Satan's motive for you is destruction and his method is distraction. That is distracting you from the word of God or separating you from your faith in the word. Basically, Satan can only attack you 
by your open invitation for him to do that. He cannot kill us. If he could, then none of us would be here. He doesn't have that power. He cannot put sickness on you. These symptoms, he didn't put the symptoms on me. The symptoms came on me either by something I did, by being somewhere with maybe some of you that I shouldn't have been, and I picked up your symptoms. <laughs> or somewhere in this city, which probably is rampant. I shouldn't say that because you'll all be reworded, but let's face it, when you get on the subway and it's packed cattle to cattle, you're going to breathe some of the air from some of the people and so forth. You visit the sick in the hospital. Guess what's in the hospital? Sickness. That's why they're there. So you can come in contact that way. So Satan didn't, didn't put it on me. And he wasn't going to keep me from teaching uh, this morning because, as I say, when I start out today, besides reciting that, you know, I'm surrounded by God's light and folded in God's love, protected by God's power and watched over by God's presence, I always say it's God that girds me with strength and makes, makes my way perfect. Now, so I'm standing here teaching. I'm on page six, and we're going to get through it. Now, as I said, basically Satan can only attack you by your open invitation for him to do so. And as I pointed out, you invite Satan to attack you, your life, your family, and circumstances by what you confess that's negative, limiting, or opposite to the word of God. You invite Satan into your life through your fears, your worry, your doubt, and unbelief. Those are major avenues where Satan can enter into and affect your life. Satan is alert and listening, and you actually invite him to attack you. By the way, once you heard and received the word of salvation, and you confess this salvation by confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Remember what we learned from Mark 4.15 last week, <coughs> where Jesus says, <clears throat> when they hear, meaning hear the word, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's one of his methods of attacking you. Stealing the word that you hear is what I call the second front in Satan's attack. His first front is to keep you from ever hearing the word in the first place, to keep you from, from going to church where you might hear the word. His first front against you is to keep you distracted enough with the cares and the enticements of this world and your focus on the negative things that are seen and this serves to block you from getting to the point of hearing and receiving the word of salvation in the first place. You don't get to the church or you don't get to that setting where the word is taught that you could receive it. So that's his first attack. The second one is stealing the word that you hear. The third attack uh, is is uh, is to uh, oh no I, I gave I gave you the two I lost my way there for a minute but I gave you the two where he tries to keep you from hearing the word and then he tries to rob the word that you hear if you do or those those are one and two so if he fails on these two his third prong attack is to attempt to entice you into some kind of sin now it's not always the sin that you think of do you know that worry is a sin? Worry is a sin because worry is denying the word of God. That's a sin. So uh, that's an example of a sin that Satan loves to attack the believer on and with. Now your defense against attacks of Satan is to be fortified. 
Your defense is to be fortified with the word of God. You must be ready to fight with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's what we're told in Ephesians 6, 17. And above all, take the sword, I mean the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You must be ready to fight with the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. And you must fortify yourself with daily affirmations or confessions of key biblical principles that are set forth in the word. Just as Jesus used the word, you remember I took you to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, <coughs> where the devil, the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. How did Jesus resist the devil? With the word of God. He said at each turn, it is written, and so forth. When you know the word of God, you can do the very same thing. In other words, when you're attacked like I'm attacked now, I tell the enemy, it's written that by his stripes I am healed. So I am healed. But I am healed <coughs> even though I'm coughing right now. Even though I might have an ache or two. You, we walk by faith, not by sight, not by how you feel, not by what you think and so forth. So regardless of how I feel, I know that I am healed. <coughs> now, as pointed out last week, Apostle Price's book points out that you must confess four important biblical truths about yourself. Again, God's, God wants you con to confess what we are in Christ, where we are in Christ, what we possess in Christ, and what we can do in Christ. So we began to look at principle number one last week, and I'm going to review that again this morning. Now, I have to tell you something about my reviews, if you haven't noticed. Since you have this written document and you have the one from last week, if you compare the two, you will see that it's not verbatim. I always approach it a little bit differently the second time or add some new things or some new scriptures to it. So it's not just repeating what I said last week. Now, we know that we must confess what we, what we are in Christ if we are to ever live the victorious Christian life. Now, this statement refers to our standing with God. As set forth in God's word, you are everything that God says you are, whether or not you are presently living or experiencing this. God's word says that I'm healed. So I'm healed even though the symptoms are here. I feel the symptoms. You can see the, the result of the symptoms. and You can maybe hear it in the voice. But regardless of that, I am healed. I am healed. So, it's one of the reasons that Jesus tells us, judge not according to appearance. In other words, I don't judge myself by the way I appear, I appear to be in terms of this attack. I judge righteous judgment. Righteous judgment in this case is what the word of God says. By his stripes I am healed. It's also why we're told that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith, not by what we see <clears throat> or feel, touch, or can see. Walking by faith means walking by the word. Now, this is important. I say this, and I've said it before. Walking by faith is walking by the word of God. When it says we walk by faith and not by sight, it means we walk by the word of God, what the word of God says, not by what we see. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18 says this. At 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it says this. For while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, 
for the things which are seen are what? Temporary. The original says temporal. Temporal means temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. When it says that the things which are seen are temporary, it means that these are subject to change. Anything that's temporary is subject to change. So, that's why you shouldn't cling to any situation that is negative, that is limiting, that suggests to you that you're not whole, well, and wonderful, that all your needs are not met. You shouldn't, you shouldn't stay focused on any of those things because they're temporary. <coughs> and the reason they last longer in some individuals' lives is because you hold on to them. That's why they remain is because you cling to them. Well, I know how much money I have in the bank. I know only, I only have this. I know I can't do this. I know. I know how I feel. So forth and so on. But it's temporary. And the things that are not seen are eternal. Now, subject to change is what makes transformation so possible and so important because we are not doomed or destined to stay in the same place. We're not doomed or destined to be in a state of lack forever. We're not doomed and destined to be sick all the time. We're not doomed and destined to not have a job. We're not doomed and destined to always be broke. We're not, none of, none of that. By the way, none of that is written in the Bible. In fact, the very opposite of that is written in the Bible says it's, when it says it's written. So now let's look again at what God says about what we are in Christ, <coughs> citing the scripture. And you know the scripture, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. <coughs> now, the Lord says, if anyone is in Christ, how does a person get in Christ? You get into Christ when you are born again by doing what Romans 10.9 says. Romans 10.9 is at the bottom of the page. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you're born again, that's how you get into Christ. And Christ is in you at this point now. And this is what makes you a new creation. Before this, you were already a creation of God, but now you are a new creation. What does it mean? New here. What does it mean? New refers to something that has never been before. I call it a new species. This is what God says you are, something that he has never seen before. And by the way, <coughs> only God is capable of creating a new species. Only God. Now, what is new in your... Now, what is new... And see, this is what you don't have in last week's message. What is new is your recreated spirit. I might have said it, but it wasn't written down. What is new is your recreated spirit, a regeneration and restoration of our spiritual connection to God that was lost by Adam and Eve. This restoration makes it possible for God's spirit to indwell us and flow through us as it was meant to be. Unless our recreated spirit that spirit is not recreated and that God's spirit is back in us, God can't dwell in, in us. So that's what it means. It means that God is now able to indwell us and flow through us as it was meant to be 
from the beginning. This indwelling spirit of God in us leads to the indwelling of the full Godhead of Father God. And this is so important. <coughs> the Godhead of the Father, uh, God, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For these three are one, as we're told in 1 John 5, 8. Now, this indwelling of the Godhead is set forth in a number of scriptures. I'm giving you three below here. And you see them right there. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that, you, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God? And 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Now we also see in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Christ in you the hope of glory. This is the ongoing work of Christ within us, working with and through the Holy Spirit to complete the regeneration and the restoration that began with salvation and it began with the transformation of us into a new creation. This work is an ongoing process. This work of regeneration is aimed at bringing in our outward body God's glory that has been deposited in our hearts and in our inner man so that we will look on the outside as we look on the inside. In the apocryphal New Testament, the question is asked, when uh, will uh, the, uh, I got to remember the exact question. It's, it's uh, in other words, when, when will the kingdom come? And it says, when the within is as the without, or as a without is as a within. In other words, when the two look the same, that's when the kingdom would come. That's what it was referring to. That's in the apocryphal New Testament. It's not in your Bible. Now, this regeneration began with Christ Jesus as the author of our faith. When we confess our faith in, 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 in Jesus and are saved, he becomes the author of our faith. And we've established in this message that Jesus remains with us until the end. So he is a finisher of our faith. He is therefore our hope of glory. <coughs> now this new creation, a new species that we are in Christ Jesus is energized to meet. And you really, I mean, these are words, but you really have to take these words to heart. Energized to meet any challenge, test, trial, or temptation with the overwhelming power of the Godhead, the full power of the Trinity, which dwells within us. This is why in John in little John, that's 1 John 4.4, 4, 1 John 4.4, 4, that's little John next to Revelations at the end of the Bible. 1 John 4.4 4 says this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, there's nothing in the universe that's greater than this power that is in us as a result of being a new creation in Christ Jesus. Knowing this, <coughs> we can affirm with great comfort the words in Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's because of your new creation status, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I pointed out last week that some of the other things that are new that come with being a new creation in Christ Jesus are some of these that we're going to talk about now. What is new is that our relationship with God is dramatically different from the relationship God had before with any of his people, those people being in the Old Testament. 
This includes the great prophets, patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. Remember, all of these great leaders were creations of God and servants of God. And the scripture will tell us throughout that God was with them. We have an entirely different relationship with God. In our status as a new creation in Christ, we are no longer just creations of God or just his servants. We are now children of God and indeed sons of God. And we're told this in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, which says this. Romans 8, 16 and 17. 16 says this. The Spirit himself <coughs> bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. <coughs> as Romans 8, 14 says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So we are children and we are sons if we're led by the Spirit. Now, we all know that a child or son has a much higher status and standing with his father than a servant has. We are sons and children. Since we also know that the Godhead dwells within us, it is no longer a case of God being with us as he was with the Old Testament leaders. God is in us. He's not just with us, he's in us through his Holy Spirit that resides within us forever. Now, we also get uh, an idea of what it means to be a new creation from Galatians chapter 2, verses 20. Galatians 2, 20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me, for me. So with Christ... Not that we have achieved out of perfection yet, which we have not. It's always a work in progress. But we are considered perfect like him. And this is important. And you need to underscore that this last line that I have here. When God sees us, he does not see the limited person that we might appear to be. The limited person that's the sinner. The limited person who is weak. The limited person who may be fearful. The limited person who may know little of his word, even though you're a born-again believer, he does not see us in any of those limitations. What does he see when he sees us? He sees Jesus. And this is so important. So people who, you know, sometimes people come in the category of assurance of, 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 of salvation, and they wonder if God is holding uh, against them, the things that they think they've done that would put them outside of his love and outside of his family and outside of being a, a child of God. God, when he sees us, he sees Jesus. This is a very important point. Now, you now have the real possibility of a life without limits, which I talked about last week. And uh, you can read that for yourself there. Now, another important thing is that since Christ is in us, you will find in the scriptures that says this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So if they're in Christ and Christ is in us, guess where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are? They're in us. Some will tap into this vast storehouse of wisdom and knowledge, while far too many never will. But as a new creation, we all have the potential of this genius. It's already there. This is what God is saying when he says to you, you are a new creation. But before we move on, we need to look at a couple of other things that come out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says that we are a new creation. 
It says all things have passed away and all things have become new. We have to be clear about what is meant by this. All things pass away, what things have become new. Only your spirit is new. Remember, we are a tripartite being. As we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23, which says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So we are spirit, soul, and body. <coughs> when you become born again, I'm at the last paragraph at the bottom of 10. When you are born again, which <coughs> causes you to be in Christ, the only part of you that becomes new is your spirit. In your spirit, before you became a Christian, you were alienated and separated from God. And I mentioned this earlier. You are in a state of what's called spiritual death. That's what Adam became when he sinned. He was separated from God. When, 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 when God said you will surely die, he didn't mean physical death. You would die in terms of being separated from me. That's where we are before we become born again. After you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are no longer alienated and separated from God. You no longer have spiritual death abiding in you which is what became the case of Adam. And we inherited that, and that was the case of all of us until we're born again. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. You now have the life of God in you, and your past, spiritually speaking, is over. We're talking about your spiritual path, past of spiritual death and alienation from God is over. But look at what's said in that, in that sentence. You now have the life of God in you, this is a vital point for you to know and say, the life in me is God in me. The life in me is God in me. And you should say that to yourself from time to time. The life in me is God in me. At the time of salvation, no change in the way of renewal has occurred in your body or in your soul. In terms of your body, it is easy to prove that no physical change has occurred. If you were bald-headed before you were saved, you're going to be bald-headed after you're saved. If you got saved with false teeth, after salvation, you're going to still have your false teeth. And why? Because the physical part of you did not pass away. That's not what passed away and all things became new. In terms of changing your soul, you have to remember that the soul is the place, the repository, that houses your mind, emotions, and intellect. Your mind, emotions, and intellect, that's your soul. Basically, change in the soul is brought about through change in your mind. This is why Romans 12.2 tells us this. Romans 12.2. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? With the word of God. Apostle Price says this. God's design is that my spirit man feed on the word, the word of God, so that my recreated spirit will direct and change my mind or soul and bring my body in line with God's word. The word of God will bring about a change in the mind, the soul, and then ultimately the body. Now Satan knows that once a Christian believer, I'm at the bottom of the paragraph uh, in, in page 11, Satan knows that once the Christian believer is empowered with the word, he will be able to keep him, meaning keep Satan out of his life. This is why he has very cleverly kept most Christians from reading and studying the Bible. Apostle Price adds this, 
And I love this little statement. He says, the devil doesn't mind you going to church. He doesn't mind you whooping and hollering. He doesn't mind you singing loud and making a lot of noise. Why? Because there is no life in that. Now, he's not disparaging praise and worship. He knows how important praise and worship. This is not what he's saying. He's saying that if you go to a church where the whooping and hollering is 98% of what takes place there, it's not going to affect your life. You might feel good at the time, but when you go out of the church and later the day and somebody asks you, well, what did you learn? I guess you learned how to hoop and holler better. But that, it's not going to help you. You need to have the word. Apostle Price adds this. Uh, he said, what Satan, does not, or what Satan does fight against, what he fights against is your spending quality time reading and studying and learning the word in the Bible. The devil knows that the word can be the food that provides the energy source that truly transforms your mind, which is your soul, and brings a body in line with what God's word says about you. That's why knowing the word is so important. That's how you transform your life. The power of faith to transform your life, which is the motto, uh, it's one of the, one of the uh, statements that, uh, that we have for the church. The power of faith. It's the power of faith in the word. The power in knowing and understanding the word. That gives you the power to transform your life. Apostle Price writes this. You are everything that God says you are. That's why I know I'm healed, because that's what God says, even though I barely got through this message, but I know I'm healed. You are everything that God says you are. This is what the statement, we walk by faith and not by sight, means. I use that scripture all the time, according to Apostle Price. When you walk by faith, it, is simply, it simply means you walk by what God says in his word. You're walking by the word. This principle seems so hard for most Christians. I'll, I'll reduce that to many Christians to understand. They still let their emotions, that their soul, remember the soul has your intellect, my, uh, emotions, uh, and their bodies, which is the flesh, get involved and dictate what they do, how they feel, how to react, and so on. God's word is what should direct my life, and it is by faith that I do it. Again, Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in closing, your confession should be, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I just gave you that scripture. What was that scripture? Philippians 4, which one? Philippians 4, 19. 413, I'm sorry, 413. 14. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember, we can do what God says we can do. How many things does it say I can do? All. All means all. And this means that you have within you the power, ability, and knowledge to do whatever you're called upon to do. Whether this is completing a goal that you've set for in your life or whether it's a case of resisting the temptation of the devil. You can, confess, you can confess what you are and what you can do by faith because this confession is exactly what the Word of God says you are and what you can do. So that's why we're going to continue looking at what the Word of God says that you can confess because if it says that this is what you are, this is what you are. If it says you can do this, you can do this. And there's a lot, so a lot much more to this. We'll get at it 
uh, next time.